Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. The following podcast contains coarse language, descriptions of violence, and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm excited to announce that joining me on the podcast as my new co-host is the one and only Nam Kiwanuka. Hello, Nam. So, okay, when I'm from East Africa (laughs) and when you're excited about something, that's what you do. Thank you, Colin. Um, Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for being our new co-host. I'm really excited to have you with us. You were on our previous episode on James Baldwin and another episode we did on uh, the 13th Amendment back in the summer of 2020, which feels like ages ago. (laughs) The um, longest year ever, yeah. I know, right? (laughs) But there's there's a lot more to you than that. So why don't you just tell our audience just a little bit about you? Well, I'm, I also um, I'm a host producer on The Agenda with Steve Bacon, and I host The Agenda in the summer. But uh, I think a lot of people recognize me from my bountiful hair from way back when I was on Much Music <laughs> as a VJ. And uh, I've also covered the NBA way back when it was hockey country. Uh, we were doing the basketball show, myself and Cabby, on NBA XL. We've known each other for a long time, uh, going back, I guess, what, five years? Yeah, you were my first producer at uh, TVO, and you made me That's feel right. very yeah. welcomed, yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I hope you feel welcome here on our, our podcast, and thank you again for uh, joining us. So you're going to be uh, joining me from time to time just to talk about the latest documentaries, including the one we're talking about today. What are we talking about? Well, I love uh, documentaries on music because, <laughs> music background, but today we're going to be talking about the new Netflix documentary. It's called Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell. And it's executive produced by Biggie's mom, Valletta Wallace, and Sean Combs. I think it's Sean Combs today because he was also Diddy, Puffy, but I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to go with Sean Combs. And and unlike other documentaries (laughs) about Big, uh, this documentary focuses more on how he lived and became the notorious B.I.G. and rather than how he died. Um, I would consider it an origin story. I know you love comic books, right? And every superhero has an origin story. Yes, and Biggie was definitely a superhero. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, And so this documentary, (laughs) uh, it gives us uh, a unique look into who B.I.G. was when he wasn't on stage performing. We learn about the person who introduced him to drug dealing, his family in Jamaica who played a pivotal role in his musical journey, and a childhood mentor who introduced him to jazz. Here's a listen. That's all it was was a dream. Something special is about to happen. My boy get three years, he get nervous. Yeah, I can't be, you know, looking like, you know, 21. True. I'm gonna keep that 18. You know what I mean? That 18 feel, no My son was a very smart kid. He was already writing since elementary. I was initially trying to groom Chris to be a jazz artist because he was so talented. Every summer, Chris would come back from Jamaica. He would be a sponge to just so much more that was outside of our scope. He was like, I got to get us off the streets. Both of us are obviously big hip hop fans, but we wanted to have on a a hip hop super fan and an actual rapper to come on and talk about this with us. So who do we have? We've got Shad. Uh, He's a Canadian hip hop artist and he's the host of Hip Hop Evolution on Netflix. Plus, he's a Juno Award winner, so I think he knows his music. 
And he's got a little bit of a connection to you, doesn't he? Yes. So I, Shad and I, we call each other uh, cousins, but we're not cousins. Like we're not blood cousins. Uh, He's from Rwanda. I'm from Uganda and Kenya, but we grew up together in London, Ontario. And I used to babysit Shad. So, you know, when people uh, pull up those photos of someone in like uh, a diaper, I (laughs) might have a few of those, but I would never do that to Shad because Shad's a great guy. Yes, no, please. He was uh, he was a great person to talk to, and uh, obviously knows his stuff. And uh, I wish I had a rapper cousin. Jeez. <laughs> well, by extension, now you do now because we're yes, cousins. all right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have you join me for this episode and future episodes we do. So let's just get into it. This is me, Nam, and Shad talking about Biggie. I got a story to tell. Well, Shad, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, I have to ask you because, uh, you know, you're obviously a well-respected rapper and uh, I'm sure you were a big Notorious B.I.G. fan or maybe you weren't. I don't know. What was your, I guess, introduction to him growing up? Yeah, I was I was a huge fan. I mean, we all were at that time, right? Um, I think when his first album came out, I was maybe 12 or 13. So I was in that phase of like being into every single thing that came out. But of course, he he stood out and Juicy stood out. Um, for me at that age, and then when the when this double album dropped, I mean, it was everything, um, posthumously. But um, but yeah, uh, I think I'm in an age age demographic where, um, I was touched by Kurt Cobain and Biggie and Tupac, but I was I was on the younger side. Like I didn't really know what they represented for the culture, quite you know, really until later. I think I'm the same. I'm, I'm about, I think I'm about the same age as you. And uh, I was about yeah, 13, probably when Ready to Die came out. And it took me a while to kind of catch up to him. But I obviously knew his music. And I knew, like, I saw the videos on Much Music all the time. And uh, remember very well when he was killed. But I think it was sort of, a, for me at least, appreciating his music was, it took a while because I was, I guess, still a little too young. Nam, what about you? For me, it wasn't the, the double album so much from Biggie. For me, it was the first one, Ready to Die, because I'm a bit older than you guys. I mean, a year or two only. Um, (laughs) So for me, it was Ready to Die. And at the time, I was writing for Mike Check magazine, which was um, an urban zine back in the day in the 90s. And um, I was working, I was trying to get into the music industry. Um, I was, I think we had just gone to, there used to be this conference called How Can I Be Down in Miami. And that was like the place where everybody, it was like a street marketing festival. This is before uh, social media. So this is like everybody who's in music and hip hop music would descend on that city. Uh, Master P, the Hot Boys. I mean, it was when I went that one year, it was just incredible. Um, So for me, when Big died and when Tupac died, it was I was kind of I was a super fan. But I was also getting into the industry and kind of seeing the business side of it and how complicated that was and how ugly that could be. Um, and I remember getting phone calls from my friends because they were one of my friends was in L.A. when Tupac died. And then he was also in L.A. when Big died. And both times he sent me a page saying this just happened. This just happened. Rapper Biggie Smalls was shot to death in Los Angeles early this morning while leaving a party. His death comes almost exactly six months to the day that another rapper, Tupac Shakur, was fatally shot in Las Vegas. Every time we had a conversation about what just happened, it just felt like 
the world was moving underneath your feet. And I know we're going to talk about the documentary, but watching the documentary kind of took me back to that time. And I realized that after Big died, a shift happened in me um, as a fan. And I think that was when I kind of stepped away from the music. Hmm. Uh, and then it just became kind of business for me. And maybe, Shad, you don't want to hear that because, you know, you're, you're a maker, you're a creator of the music. But I think because I had been a fan for such a long time and then I saw the business side of it and it just felt like it was such a, a waste for these two super talented human beings who are loved by so many people to die under those circumstances for me it was just kind of like it just made me reevaluate my relationship with uh, music in that at, at that time yeah that's that's so interesting to hear because again i was too young to understand really what it all meant to the culture right but uh working on hip-hop evolution and we have obviously an episode where we talk about those two deaths and to see it all in context and how hip hop changed and did become more like business oriented, like it just in general, you know what I mean? Like it really was the start of like, um, well, Master P came in a little bit after that. And obviously Diddy continued to like, you know, be successful. Jay-Z was in his phase of like, I'm really looking at this like a business. Um, so I think it, I think it changed a lot of people, man. Like, I think it changed the whole thing. Like, let's, we'll get into it all. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess for anyone who's not familiar with Biggie, Biggie's music, um, or Biggie himself, I should just say, you know, he was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York and Bedford Syverson, which he, I think he, I think you can give him credit for kind of making famous, right? Um, you know, he came from a single mother who was uh, from Jamaica. And actually this film, I think, more than any other uh, doc I've seen about him, really explored his Jamaican roots and just how it played into his rap style. What, what did you guys think of that? For Hip Hop Evolution, actually, we filmed a whole week in Jamaica. We didn't use it. Mm. Really? Why not? Because, you know, ultimately you have to pick a starting point, right, for the story of hip hop. You could go back. You could keep going back and keep going back, keep going back. But, you know, we filmed there because Jamaica is so important to the story of hip hop. You can hear it in his style, you know, mm. um, and and so many other like great rappers and DJs like like Jamaican music culture is in the DNA of hip hop heavy. So that was very cool to see that in the doc because it's it's kind of like undertold the story of that. I didn't know that. that relationship. Yeah. I like this documentary because it was about how he lived and not about how he died. Because I think all the other documentaries that I've seen about Big, it's been about that feud and it kind of erased him as an individual. So seeing this documentary where he's with his mother, showing the connection with his mother, um, we knew about that. But also the connection that he had with his uncle. Uh, going back to Jamaica every summer, his mom made sure that he would go back. And so he knew that side of himself. And then when he came back, uh, his friends in the documentary were saying, you know, he would bring records from Jamaica and he had he would incorporate because uh, um, he had Jamaican slang in his songs. And I was always like, you know, some of my friends would have debates like, well, you know, I think when you come from Toronto, you just kind of co-opt, you know, the Jamaican. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's not right, but it's just it's so ingrained in Toronto culture, music culture. Right. And we would be like, OK. But I think that's what, what that was one part of his appeal because people here would hear it. We're in Toronto, but at the time when they had that East West thing, 
we're in the East Coast, so obviously big is our guy. Um, and <laughs> and then when you'd hear that Jamaican slang in the songs, you're like, see, I told you. I mean, he's our guy. You know, you're not going to hear Tupac using that yeah. uh, that slang. Um, but I also felt really sad because his uncle um, that was in the documentary that obviously influenced him uh, with music, his uncle is still alive. His granny uh, in Jamaica is still alive and his granny is in her 90s. And to see these people uh, from his life that were part of his um, childhood and part of his sound, part of who he was as a musician, as an artist, still alive, but he's not here. Uh, it also made me very sad to see. I also like the you know the influence of jazz on his style as well. There was a, a, a jazz musician, a saxophonist named Donald Harrison who... Uh, kind of mentored Biggie and, and, you know, actually wanted him to become a jazz artist. I didn't actually hear that influence in his raps before watching this doc. I don't know if either of you picked up on that. I wasn't sure what to make of that comment. The, 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 um, the jazz, like, I don't, I don't suspect that Biggie was writing those rhymes being like, how can I incorporate this jazz rhythm? <laughs> I don't think that's what happened. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but they overlaid his rap over a drum beat, right? Mm -hmm. Or like a, a jazz drum. I'm not familiar with all the musical terms, but I just thought that was kind of an interesting... Well, his flow, his flow is very unorthodox. You know, there's been YouTube videos that kind of break down the way he... How can I put it? It's like most people, they always rhyme at the end of the to count the end of the measure, the end of the bar or whatever. You can kind of predict when that rhyme is going to fall and when the rhyme is going to change. And with Big, you could never do that. Um, he had a very unorthodox style, but it just was so infectious to like listen to and rap along with. So there were definitely some very cool things he did with rhythm. I thought that was maybe a stretch. Like, I don't think he was kind of going... Well, yeah, that Buddy Rich thing. Let me do that. Like, I don't think he was doing that. Um, but yeah, I think it was cool to talk about the different the different musical influences, the Jamaican influence. I think, and we'll probably get into this, but just where he was at in Brooklyn, like, you know, there were jazz musicians there. Like, it was a like a, an area that's full of culture, right? Um, and I've heard people talk uh, about this when they compare Biggie and Nas because Nas was in the Queensbridge housing projects and that was a lot less of a like you know it was a very insular community compared to where big was at in brooklyn where lots of people moving around and 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 going and arts and culture yeah and lots of arts and yeah. culture and stuff and i've heard people say that's why big kind of like broke internationally and nas with those first couple albums even though they're classics they didn't reach that level because his worldview his experience of the world was just like not the same as Biggs. His world was like insular. So, yeah, I think there's something to all the different influences he absorbed and just being in a neighborhood that was rich in music and culture, for sure. But I did think that moment was... A, I did laugh at that... <laughs> at that moment. I'd rather make a buck, drive a fat-ass truck, grab the nine, two clips, and run them up. Yes, flex after two or three bets. I wreck shit. What the fuck you expected? A fly guy? Well, fuck it. I'm a high guy. From bed, stop putting the swelling on your eye. Your nose even. When I choke me, you stop breathing. But police come, I'm bleeding. Peace and love. Let me go. Well, I thought it was interesting because, um, again, when you do in the past, when you hear about Big, it's him and his mom, right? Um, and so hearing um, his mentor, Donald Harrison, 
And he, he, when he was talking, I think for me, the things that I picked out was him taking him to museums and trying to mentor him uh, because he didn't grow up with his father. And there's a lot of things in the documentary that I, I, I found out about Big that I didn't know. And for sure, Chad, I think that maybe he was influenced by the jazz music. You know, I think there's it's hard to separate because um, we're from East Africa. So obviously those rhythms are influenced in your music too, Chad, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So the stuff that you grow up with, you um, it influences your styles. Even if we can't hear it, maybe for a jazz musician, I don't know. Yeah. I have a very bad ear. But I thought that it was cool that he had a mentor growing up. Uh, and he had this man who um, had his back and took him to museums and, again, exposed him to uh, more than just the street corner. Um, but I thought it was interesting when, ja when Biggie said that he didn't like hip hop, that he liked slow jams. And when he said it, I was like, oh, I laughed at that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. I <laughs> that makes sense. I'm like, OK, yeah. He had a lot of his music. I think one of the reasons that it was so uh, popular, women liked it. Um, a lot of women liked his music. And then he had, uh, when he started working with uh, Puffy, they would have like the samples, the, the music, like the Diana Ross sample, where people, it gets people on the dance floor, right? People are kind of familiar with it. You want to dance. And then if you listen to the lyrics, the guys are like, okay, you know, so he had a little <laughs> bit of, he had a little bit of something for everybody. Um, and the other thing about the doc that I didn't realize that he was shy, because on stage he has such a presence. And maybe that's the other thing, too, with Nas and Biggie. I mean, Nas is very nice to look at. I'm big, you know, in the documentary. Not, listen, it seems as if he was also um, self-conscious about how he looked, you know. Uh, one of his friends was uh, made a comment about Big, knew that he was big in stature, and he was self-conscious with his uh, lazy eye. That's why he wore the dark glasses. Uh, but you wouldn't know that he was self-conscious, and you wouldn't know that he was shy. Because when he was on stage, all eyes were on big. He had this uh, persona that uh, everybody was drawn to him. Um, and, you know, I remember being at a club once back in the day, uh, DJ starting from scratch used to DJ at this place called uh, Jericho. It would be everywhere, but it was like Jericho was the brand. Um, and I remember listening. He was playing, I love it when you call me Big Papa. And the whole place, it was packed. And it was a white party, so everybody was wearing white. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you hear gunshots. And then the club stops. And that is one memory that is seared in my head. Um, but... It kind of just takes me back to that time when I'm like, you know, in my early 20s, you're starting to figure out who you are as an adult. Um, and I loved that part of the documentary. I know I just went off on a tangent, but <laughs> all these little things about him being shy. And then if you see him on stage, you would never know that that's how he felt off stage. Yeah, I loved I, I loved all that, too. Um... Yeah, as much as I laughed at that little jazz moment, like the the that mentorship was maybe the most poignant thing in the whole doc to me. You know, just that time in a young person's life where you're just really trying to give them experiences and keep them occupied. And the way this man went out of his way to do that for Big was really poignant to watch. And then, yeah, like the the shyness thing was just another reminder to me of how young he was. You know, he didn't have time to get confident, you know, in in his in his own skin. I mean, he had his musical persona. Um, but yeah, like he was too he was too young to to get that kind of confidence. 
One thing that I think the doc, you know, isn't shy about exploring is his um, involvement in in selling drugs and selling crack specifically. And, you know, even though he had, you know, some positive role models in his life, this uh, jazz musician, his own mother, uh, and he wasn't, you know, he was kind of in an odd area of, I guess, Brooklyn, because he was sort of on the border of, I think it was called the Clinton Hill District, where there was all this uh, cultural um, influence and um I think he, you know, it was between that and I think Bedford Stuyvesant, which was a little rougher. He still was kind of like, I guess, maybe not torn, but you know, he sort of felt himself pulled in the direction of the drug trade. And I think, you know, even when he was uh, signed, I think he was still selling drugs, and you know, he wasn't quite successful yet, but he was still kind of, you know, doing that. And then ultimately, I guess he, uh, once he was, once Puffy was able to convince him, hey, this is what we need you to, you know, focus on the music. That's when he finally dropped it. But uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting that he he still went down that route despite uh, having, I guess, the uh, other options. I guess. Well, we we see it in in retrospect, and we're like, "Come on, big, what are you doing? You know, you're 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 about to be a star." But obviously, you know, as someone works in the music industry, you never trust anything. Like you never trust anything until you know the the check is in the account or the contract is signed. I mean. It's, things fall apart this all the time so yeah that was you know fascinating to watch for us knowing how the story ends and well knowing how his career took off to be like what are you doing but obviously and and especially at that time in hip-hop because again now in music is completely different people have the means to record their own music release their own music people blow up overnight again this was an era in hip-hop where if you follow the culture, you literally know everyone who's making music. Like, that's how few success... And, no, and those people aren't even necessarily successful. You have to also sell a certain amount to really be making money. So, um, so yeah, just to enter into his mindset at that time of like, yeah, I mean, I got a little song on this soundtrack and I hear it in people's cars, but but this means nothing. It's hard for us to remember what hip-hop was. Uh, When when we spoke with KRS-One for um, Hip Hop Evolution, and he was talking about the time where he made uh, The Bridge Is Over, which is a hip hop classic now, and he takes out like... Yeah, (laughs) you know, one of the classic hip hop tracks, he's taken out every rapper in Queens, it's like, it's one of the most important songs in the history of hip hop, and he told us, I was sleeping on the train at that time. I mean, it's just, that's what hip hop was. It was this little world, you know? And yeah, he was just trying to be the king of it. But uh, and and big the beginning of Big's career is not that far removed from that. Hip hop was not a, a sure thing for anybody. So uh, yeah, that was fascinating to watch, knowing you know from our point of view how good he is, how much his career is about to take off. But like he had no clue. Can I add something to that yeah. too? Because um, because I think uh, at one point in the documentary. He said, you know, we were growing up as uh, children of immigrants, so we felt like outsiders. Mm. And I think that I've never, when he said that, I was like, oh, okay, that kind of, we all know what it's like to not fit in. Um, And because they were, you know, first generation, even if they were, you know, the guy on the block, they still felt as if they didn't belong there. And when Big started uh, dealing crack, he was 16. Um, and another gem in the mo- in the documentary that I, I didn't know um, is he said that he loved to draw. 
Um, and he he gave up that dream when he started to deal crack because of the money. 16, how many decisions, like when you look back at 16, how many good decisions do we, any of us make, you know? And we all made bad decisions at that age because again, we lacked the maturity. And I understand what you were saying because I was like, your mom's a teacher. You know, and throughout the documentary, you had different voices. Some of his childhood friends say that his mom was always leaning out and looking down on the stoop and saying, Christopher, come in and eat. Christopher, uh, do this. Um, and she was always on him. So it's like you had somebody rooting for you. So why would you go down that road? But again, 16, you can't really see where is my future beyond uh, beyond now. And if other people are saying, you know, this is how you can make uh, money, and right now we're talking about racism. Uh, we're talking about systemic racism. Back then, I don't know if they were having those conversations. I don't think so. So as a 16-year-old uh, black kid, what are your options? What are your options? And I think someone, uh, there was three options. You end up dead, you end up in jail, or you end up dealing. Um, and those are the options for him. Maybe he chose the right, the wrong one, obviously. And his mom in the documentary was very upset because she didn't know that that's what he was doing. I don't know um, if he hadn't dealt crack, though, would he have ended up being uh, making the music that he did because it ended up being uh, a big part of his material. And, you know, as storytellers, we're we always we're always told to write what you know. Um, and if he hadn't done that, maybe his music wouldn't have turned out the way uh, it would have been. And, you know, like Shad said, in retrospect, we can look and say, well, you shouldn't have done that, or maybe you should have made a different choice. But he might not, he might not have ended up being big if he hadn't dealt crack. And this was part of his story. Yeah. yeah. Well, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that the more you dig into some of these great artists, the more you find these kind of fascinating tensions within their story, right? Like like you were describing with Big where, you know, he he does have some good influences in his life and but he also has a lot of negative influences. And he is so talented, but he's also, you know, in the streets. It's and and Tupac is probably the classic example of that. You know, all of these tensions within this guy. He's this art school kid, child of a panther, absolutely brilliant. Um, but also has suffered all of these different traumas, including poverty. And and so, yeah, to get more... we I think we've always seen that with Pac. Like, that story's been told a lot with him. Um, but we, we hadn't seen it before with Big. That, like, he's a child of immigrants in Brooklyn. Like, all of these tensions that live within him that are really, like, what end up um, creating this really great music and this really broad appeal that again like is, is almost unmatched in hip-hop like the women love him the dudes love him the yeah. streets love him he's kind of r&b but he's the hardest mc like um all of that comes from uh yeah just just all of these really deep um tensions and contradictions i think there was also i i got a sense of um big felt uh, responsible for a lot of different people. And I wonder if he had been one of those dudes who was just like, it's just about me, it's just about self, if he would have done some of the things that he did, not to excuse them, but he seemed to have a lot of 
uh, he was he seemed to be a very loyal individual where it was like, OK, I'm going to get us out of here. I'm going to make sure that everybody's taken care of. I'm going to make sure that my mom's taken care of. I'm going to make sure that my friends are taken care of. Little C's in the documentary at one point, he's like, you know, he keeps saying Junior Mafia, Junior Mafia. He's like, who's Junior Mafia? They didn't even know who Junior Mafia was. And then Big was like, you guys, you know, he was trying to get them to um, so they can have their own thing, so they can build on their own. And one of the things that broke my heart was that, you know, the guy that got big, uh, started that helped big start to, uh, deal crack that showed him the ropes is still alive. And some of the, uh, most of his friends that he ran around with, with the exception of his best friend, Ollie, they were all still alive. Um, and he tried to save so many people, but he couldn't save himself. And that's just it's heartbreaking. And Shad, you're right. We knew so much about Tupac and the many complexities of who he was as a musician and as an individual. But with Pac, uh, with a Biggie, I think this is the first time we see all these contradictions. And we're, again, this documentary is not just about how he died, but about how he lived and the many, many layers um, of who he was as a person. You, you really hear those tensions in Ready to Die. Like I, I was listening to it um, yesterday and I just you know, all the things he's talking about. I mean, there's obviously the things like that we're all familiar with, like, like dealing drugs and, uh, you know, the more, I guess, sex <laughs> oriented tracks the more like, uh, you know, big Papa, that sort of thing. But then, you know, there's, there's references to his mom having breast cancer. There's a whole track where he talks about wanting to kill himself and then does at the end. Stress is building up. I can't, I can't believe suicides on my fucking mind. I want to leave. I swear to God, I feel like death is fucking calling me. Calling nah, you wouldn't understand. I just, I don't, that darkness, you know, I, obviously I, I knew it existed before, but I hadn't, I, I guess I hadn't heard it. I heard it differently when I watched this doc. I wonder what you guys made of it. Yeah, I heard it. Um, How did I hear it? I guess I heard it a lot in the context of like all of these challenges he was facing, right? Like his his mom's cancer, as as you said, his uh, reluctance to believe that this was going to work out, this music thing is going to work out. Like just in that way that I think we all relate to, but especially the younger part of us relates to, like, I don't want to get hurt. You know, I don't want to believe in something and have it not work out. You know, I, I really felt that acutely with him and that's, and that's all heavy, you know? And then, um, Nam, as you were just saying, plus all these people he's trying to help. I, I don't think we talk enough about the fact that he wrote a whole album for Junior Mafia. Like not a lot of those people could write. He basically wrote that whole thing, you know, um, just so they could get on and just so they could have um, something because he, he saw something in them. So if you think about all of that on someone who's what, 20? That's heavy. That's really, really heavy. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like I got um, a lot of insight uh, into where that heaviness comes from. You know, it wasn't as much as he naturally kind of flowed into this persona when he was on the mic, like that was not persona. Like that was really what he was going through. That was really the weight of it on a young, on a young person, you know, coming out. I think uh, Pac at one point in the documentary says that Ready to Die is an uncomfortable album. And it is uh, because throughout the album, he's talking about dying and 
he does explain in the documentary that he didn't want to be dead, but and I think the quote was that if I was dead, then I wouldn't have to worry about anything because he was he had a lot of worries and he felt like the world was on his shoulders. I think the thing that I appreciated the most about that album, and I think listening to it now, is that I didn't understand how um, how much he helped other men. He was so vulnerable with himself and hip hop rap music is a genre of music where, you know, Yes, we have different, it frustrates me. People always talk about the thug music or the hardcore stuff, but hip hop has always been about uh, elevating the community, about taking care of the community, education. Um, and, but then some, and obviously the hardcore stuff has its place as well because life is messy, life is hard. And in Ready to Die, he talks about that messiness, but he talks about it in the way where I, I think at that time, even now, um, a lot of dudes have, a hard time, uh, even a lot of women, um, I don't want to make generalizations here to take away from the point that I'm trying to make, is that he was very vulnerable and he was able to give people, listeners, that permission to say, I, I've i been through this. It's hard to, I understand what it's like to go to that dark place um, and to think about dying and to uh, have the weight of the world on your shoulders and not to have an out. And the out for him was making the music. And when I listen back now as a grown up, as an adult, because I was listening to this in my late teens, early 20s, and I didn't know myself as an individual. Now I know myself as an individual. And I don't even know, when I think about him, like how many men did he help um, by writing that music and expressing those thoughts and just giving them that partnership that, you know, I see you, I know it's hard, I've gone through this, um, and this is what it feels like. So, you know, yeah, some people might listen to it and they might think, oh, that's crass or that's, you know, but, <laughs> uh, you know, life is messy and it's not always pretty. And for a lot of people, life is really difficult. And um, yeah, I think I think that's a very good uh point yeah i mean hip-hop is it's the reason why big and Pac like have resonated globally you know with a lot of young men right like just that permission to to look at those feelings yeah i sort of wondered about just how 2021 we look at that music now just some of the i guess crisis as you put it nam like you know because I, I can i can hear a song like dead wrong which is not on ready to die but it's uh, I love it. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's just really hard and it's also got a lot of things said in it that are, you know, we can't air on this podcast, but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, like you know, there's always talk about cancel culture and then, you know, uh, wokeness and everything like that. But it's one of those songs that I think people would kind of like, maybe, I don't know, some, there's some aspects of it people might cringe at. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if, if you feel that way when you hear it, but that's something I, I was thinking about when I was listening to his music this weekend. It's part of the magic of Big, you know, it's just like, again, that broad appeal that he got away with it all. Mm -hmm. You just like the guy, you know, and, and people always point to his, his funeral and the procession through Brooklyn and to show like how loved he was. And it's true. And like, yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think of certain lyrics just off the top of my head. And I'm just like, wow, I can't believe he, you know, got away with that. But, you know, there's a there's a thing uh, of likability when you talk about entertainment, you know, and 
some people have it and some people don't. And he just had it in, in spades. And we got a glimpse with this as to why. You know, again, he just, he lit, he was at the intersection of so many things. Um, and yeah, uh, w- one thing I did want to say, this is like totally pivoting, but my, I, probably my favorite thing about the doc is the Brooklyn, the, the mapping of that area. Yeah. That was my favorite thing. Um, because Big made this place like mythical, um, like you were saying at the outset, Bedford Stuyvesant, like Brooklyn, like a lot of rappers before were from Brooklyn, but Big really put Brooklyn on the map and was always talking about Fulton and was always talking about these specific areas. And to see that mapped out, it's like that real detailed picture of what it was like. There, there's a book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, by Jeff Chang. That's like one of the more best um, texts about the early days of, of hip-hop. And my favorite thing about that book was very similarly, like, um, it, it broke down the South Bronx, like, by block. Like, New York City blocks, real blocks. Like, you know what a block means. It's not far. And so you talk about... This guy, he just lived over there. Like, it's literally a two-minute walk that DJ lived over there. And this artist lived over here. You know what that means. That's a a one-and-a-half-minute walk. Like, it's amazing. Um, So, again, you get a sense of, like, literally almost this fertile ground for, you know, culture. And how much proximity plays into it and cities, you know. um, Yeah. And also kind of, like... You know, there's certain blocks you can't go on. Like, I think Puffy said it. They know he, he's from Harlem, but he couldn't just hop on a train to Brooklyn, you know, without, I guess, being invited. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. And that's everyone we talked to from Hip Hop Evolution, too, would say that about that era in Brooklyn. Like, Brooklyn was where you got robbed. Like, it yeah. was like robbing specifically. Like, you, yeah. <laughs> no, you get robbed in Brooklyn. They rob you. That's what people yeah. do in Brooklyn. And yeah. And Puff is, you know, Puff is like, he, he he's a strong. He's like, I know my place. He's yeah. a strong dude, but he's like, no, yeah. I know my place. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> was there anything you felt the doc was missing? I think uh, it could have been used a bit more tension in the sense that um, I think when documentaries, we all are messy people, right? We all have gone. I know when I was in my twenties, I was a bit of a jerk, um, and I work not to be a jerk. And I thought that it kind of didn't show... Everybody who was talking about him was talking about him with reverence, with um, with love. There wasn't anybody that said, well, he hurt me or he... I mean, his mom, he definitely hurt his mother because he was kind of living um, a double life. But I just thought that they could have used that. He did this to me, but then, you know, I kind of made peace with it or he made peace with me it was just very clean um what i did like was the videos from his friend d rock uh i mean i don't think the documentary could have been made without that footage uh, from the time that he was you know a young man wearing the suit to school and him rhyming to the battle that everybody started um uh, knowing about him when he was uh, Biggie Smalls. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I thought that was funny. When I I was like, okay, so why did he stop being Biggie Smalls? Because I'm a journalist. I wanted to find out. Do you all know why he stopped? Well, I think it was there was another guy named that, right? 
Okay, so let me tell you. Yeah, so there was another guy um, who was a rapper. Um, he, he's Wikipedia says he's Latino, but some people say that he was a, a, a white rapper from the West Coast. But here where it gets interesting, I mean, it could just be a coincidence. <laughs> so this guy, Biggie Smalls, uh, actually worked with one of his producers, went on to produce for Tupac. So oh. he was connected to Tupac, like, you know. Uh, but I thought that was interesting because I was like, why did he change? Because Biggie Smalls is the illest. Your style is played out like Arnold and what you're talking about, Willis. I think that's one of the rhymes where people are like, okay, Biggie. And then mm -hmm. he becomes notorious B.I.G. So that cleared up. It cleared it up for me in the documentary. And I thought that was that's you know, funny, yeah. interesting. There are little nuggets in the film like that. I didn't know that any I of that. Appreciated, yeah. 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 Well, I think one thing that's kind of missing, and it's, I think for good reason, because I think it's been told over and over again, is the East Coast, West Coast view that eventually claimed both him and Tupac's life. And uh, I think the only thing I was kind of surprised by, and I think maybe Hip Hop Evolution might have touched on this as well, Shad, is just that, you know, he went over there thinking that the beef was over, that he didn't really even think there was a beef. There was sort of a naivete on his part, which I thought was just really sad because I think you know, maybe if he had waited longer. Yeah. Um, I know it's, it's all this stuff that in retrospect, we're like, why, why, you know, yeah. but obviously you understand if you're at that time and he's feeling like, you know, I have nothing to hide. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, why can't I go to LA? I know there's people that love me there. I love Los Angeles and I love, uh, you know, LA music. Like, why can't I go, right? Um, so it's all this stuff that in retrospect, you know, we just, we hate watching that part of the movie every time, but I, I get it, you know? Um, one thing I would have, the only thing I would have loved to see is uh, a bit more about the making of Life After Death. And I know there's other docs that have like covered that, but it, it's it's not a perfect album, but what he demonstrates on that album, to me, really puts him in the pantheon forever. Like, he gets on the song with Bone Thugs and does their style, you know, and then he gets on Mo Money, Mo Problems and, you know, just drops a verse that basically everyone knows to this day and is a smash. I mean, it's just, he's all over the place doing every style and just crushing it. Like he's just, just beast mode, just doing everything on that album, you know? And, and so I would have loved to hear more about what that would have felt like to be around that. Like just to be around this guy who's really come into his own and just watching him day after day making these songs that you got to be like as an engineer or whoever might be in that room as soon as he's cutting it you just know like this is this is it this song is a classic we're just we're just making classics every day like i would have just loved a little bit more of that just as a as a music fan that's where i always my interest is always like how did that song get made and what what was it like um but every doc serves its purpose right you can't do everything and this one i think was really about showing us who he was and what he was you know what he went through as a as a young man yeah well we kind of have to wrap up our conversation but uh, before we go i have to ask both of you to name me your favorite notorious big track can i pick two um, please don't judge me <laughs> no no judgment here i'm going to pick i'm going to pick dreams and uh warning mm. 
Oh, good pick. Okay. Don't judge me. No, I, I don't judge. I know. It's a contradiction. It's problematic, but, you know. The first two to come to mind is just is unbelievable and um, sky's the limit. Nice. Mm. I wanna, I'm going to yeah, I'm going to say um, get money. Get money is so incredible. Get money and um, uh, give me the loot. Give me the loot. It's just like I didn't even know that the other verse being done was by him. I thought it was a different rapper. It's just because he sped up his voice, right? Yeah, it just I he just yeah. I think that's why I like warning too because it's you know he's having a conversation with himself. He was just such an incredible storyteller. It just it's you know I don't think there's any been anyone like him. And you know as someone who I I grew up listening to hip hop, I kind of fell off of it a little bit uh, more recently, but I'm starting to come back to it. Um, Yeah, like Ready to Die, you can put that up with any other album from this century or last century. You know, Sgt. Pepper, I don't care. Thriller, I don't care. Ready to Die goes up there. It's incredible. Well, Shad, I I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, I wonder if there's anything you can tell us about what you're working on. I know Hip Hop Evolution's uh, on Netflix and stuff, but... Yeah, I've, yeah, Hip Hop Evolution obviously is is on Netflix for I don't know forever I guess, um, <laughs> and yeah, I can't you know really say anything too much more beyond that. Um, new music coming soon, but this is just like a, a pleasure, you know. Um, I watched obviously as soon as that doc came out, I watched it like and uh, just to get to chat with you guys about it, it was a pleasure. Awesome, thanks so much, man. My pleasure. Thanks, Chad. Yeah. And that's the podcast. You can watch Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell on Netflix. And while you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend, another friend, and another friend about us. And if you know Biggie, you know where that lyric was from. Um, (laughs) It helps us get new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. And you can follow me at Namshine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer, Laurie Few. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you at the next screening.